Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of What We Can't Not Talk About. Today, you're about to listen to one of our specials, the broadcasting of live events that we hosted here in Austin. In this case, it is a very special one, or more than one. It's a part of a series. In late November, as you might already know, the Austin Institute hosted journalist and author Sora Bamari. While with us, Amari gave a talk at the University Catholic Center where he talked about his personal story, his journey to the faith, and the dangers of our contemporary culture and its wokeism with Father Jonathan Rea. On the following day, he discussed three chapters of his latest book, The Unbroken Thread, with three of our scholars and senior fellows, Professor Jay Budzachewski, Professor Robert Kuhns, and Professor Margaret Neros. We are now releasing those conversations on our podcast, and you can find them on our YouTube channel, too. As you enjoy the conversations, remember that all these events are possible thanks to your generous donations. Today, you're about to listen to the fourth and last episode of the series, Is Sex a Private Matter? The Sociology of Sex and the Future of the Family, a conversation between UT professor of sociology, Mark Agneros, and author Sora Bamari. Enjoy. So the, the chapter, uh, Is Sex a Private Matter, is the most unusual one in the Unbroken Thread. It's probably the one that in the various reviews has garnered the most attention because it's eyebrow-raising that, uh, you know, Sarabamari would um, cite um, and, and treat as a serious figure on questions of sex and sexuality a radical feminist like Andrea Dorkin, and um, so it is also the chapter in which my relationship to the figure who is at the heart of the chapter is most complicated. In other words, all the others have this almost hagiographic quality where um, you don't really see me criticizing the subject of the chapter, uh, whether it's Newman or or, um, St. Augustine or St. Thomas, but with with Andrea Dorkin, um, the way that I uh, approach it is a little bit more critical, a little bit more questioning. I say that I can come, I can walk alongside her intellectually up to a point beyond which I can't. And so there's, and, and I spell out where I can. So again, rather than just kind of recapitulating the argument of the chapter or summarizing it in 10 minutes, I'll tell you a little bit about the genesis. So I wanted to do a chapter on on sexuality in a book about tradition. It seemed inevitable. And I was searching for a figure. And an editor I know um, at Random House, who was not the editor of this book, um, named Bria Sanford, had had kept pointing me. She said, you know, look at at Dworkin. There are things there where a, a traditional Catholic or a traditionalist more generally, might there might be areas of agreement, at least as to the diagnosis of what's gone wrong with sex in, in modernity, if not necessarily the prescription or solution. And so I did. And then um, I, I began to have a, an ongoing conversation with Bria, where I was reading Dworkin. And I, by the way, Dworkin was a, a master prose stylist, to give her her due. And so I was really struck by Dorkin as a, as a writer. And it, it um, the picture of her became, that I had became much richer than the stereotypic picture of, you know, 
fat, angry, man-hating lesbian who thinks uh, all sex is rape. And I realize, in fact, um, uh, that she, she, she is not just her, her collection of her grievances, because she's absolutely a wounded person, um, but it's not necessarily just her wounds talking. She, this is a serious thinker in her own right. And, and then Bria pointed me to a journal article by the uh, University of Notre Dame uh, professor John Cavadini, um, who had had wised up to the possibilities of of Dorkin for Christian thinkers many years earlier, and this essay is had been circulating around, you know in the kind of Catholic intellectual sphere I think for for years, and then come across it, and he, he makes this audacious move in which he suggests that Andrea Dorkin's account of sexuality as A, inherently public, and in some ways inherently troubling, um, would find a warm reception in, of all people, um, the bishop of, with of all people, the bishop of Hippo. And so it's an Augustinian reading of Dworkin, um, where he specifically focuses Cavadini on this bit in the City of God in which um, St. Augustine is mocking the kind of mythical account of the bride and groom's first night after the wedding. And um, he, he wonders why the entire host of Roman gods, from major to minor gods, all had to be in the, 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 the sort of chamber, as it were, when the couple consummates their love for the first time. And, you know, one god is there to hold her down, another one to help the man, like, get worked up, and so on and so forth. And St. Augustine wonders why does the kind of public ideology of pagan Rome need to create this whole scene? And he sounds a note which sounds remarkably Dorkinian in the sense that he says that what's about to happen to the girl is in some ways very troubling, and she's she's terrified, and the the... the um, public ideology of Rome, or the uh, pagan Rome, had to create this whole legitimation structure for what is inherently a scene of lustful domination. And so, of course, uh, Dorkin had uh, uh, similar ideas, as I said. So she um, is a, a product, in some ways, of the 1960s revolt against traditional authority. And so in some ways, she, her wounds are wounds caused by the sexual revolution. And um, uh, what I see her as, as a, is you know, a critic, although nominally on the left, she is really a critic of the outcome of the sexual revolution, that in fact, it did not liberate women, but rather uh, empowered awful men. And um, what is... What is really striking about this fact is that in her books, Intercourse, which is the most controversial one, but also her memoir, the men she identifies as as as, as you know, chief violators, people you know who com he, she compares to Himmler, are typically not the stodgy remnants of authority, but rather they are the liberated men of the sexual revolution. They're they're the men who. Um, claim to have transcended the moral altogether or to come up with a new morality. And these were the men who abused her and prompted her kind of ferocious turn in the American feminist tradition. Um, and, but where, we, so here's where we part ways is for, for, for St. Augustine, 
that lustful domination is a product of the fall. Um, and so he, he imagines pre-fall se Edenic sex as one in which this element of fear on both sides of alienation, of domination, is not there. Um, and um, that opens the possibility that sex can somehow be redeemed, um, if not on this, in this life, then perhaps in the next. Whereas for Dworkin, there was really no solution. So she comes up with various solutions in intercourse over the years that various feminists have proposed, one where only women lead the, the act, and so the men is a sort of uh, a passive subject, and it's the woman who dominates, and she's like, eh, that doesn't really work. Then she, does, she imagines um, you know, other kind of solutions of the kind, like, and, and rules them all out, and, and ultimately concludes that you know, men are shits, and there's nothing to, do be, to be done about them. And so it's, it's, all, um, it, it's all broken and hellish. And that's, that's, not, uh, that's almost Gnostic, right? That's all, it's almost the rejection of the bodily, because she says the very act itself the mechanics of it are, are transgressive of the woman's kind of interior integrity, and there's just nothing to be done about that. And of course, I suggest that the, that the, tr the very tradition of traditionalism that she rejected offered some solutions to at least regulate dominating lust, whether that meant modesty norms, separation of men and women in various stages, the natural law which ordered this otherwise unruly appetite to at least to to the good of, 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 the, of the child and the family and so on and so forth. And she, I think, mistakenly, at various points in intercourse, looks at tradition, notices that it tries to tame dominating lust, but says, eh, no, it's just, this is just one more way for men to dominate women. That's why they've come up with these rules. And she doesn't, if you, if you read the, the chapter, it's the least persuasive. She doesn't really, she doesn't have a reason for why she rules out tradition as a, as a solution to dominating lust. She just sort of says, well, this, this, men couldn't be, men created these theories and they couldn't be well-intentioned in doing so. So this is all a way, if men could do whatever they wanted sexually, it would somehow up, up, upset the male supremacist apple cart. And so that's why they came up with natural law or that's why they came up with modesty norms and so forth. So. Um, I guess I did sort of summarize the argument of the book, but um, I look forward to it. In this case, in this case, because I didn't have a, uh, the backstory was just that uh, John Cavadini is, is brilliant, so. <laughs> Thanks, Sora. Uh, so I, I first met, just a little background, I first uh, interacted with Sorab, uh, I think it was, it must have been over email, uh, when I think you wrote the, the Against the Dead Consensus piece and First Things, um, and then Kevin Stewart forwarded it to me and said, hey, you want to sign this? And so then I ignored it, like I usually do these things for a week, 10 days, two weeks, or until the deadline. Kevin says, hey, deadline's two hours from now. <laughs> so I read it. Like, yeah, that seems fine. I'll sign it. And then thinking that, you know, these things don't go anywhere. <laughs> and this one did, which, you know, two days later, like, what did I sign? <laughs> so uh, I went back and read it and like, yeah, I like it. It's good. It's true. So I was happy to, to do it, and uh, I've, I've enjoyed reading your stuff since. So you ask in this chapter um, that features this kind of conversation of sorts, almost, between Augustine and uh, Andrea Dworkin, is sex a private matter? First, the, the title of the chapter reminds me of how we do share things in common <clears throat> with radical feminists. Not a lot but some things, and that's v valuable and it should never be uh, dismissed. And wherever you have 
common ground. It's something to, 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 to build upon if possible. And you highlight several of these in the form of quotes from uh, Dworkin. I just want to read a couple of those things. She says, the worst immorality is to use another person's body in the passing of time. The internal landscape of sex ends not in sexual climax, but in a human tragedy of failed relationships, vengeful bitterness. I mean, we, you know, immerse yourself in, in, in the data of sexual behavior in the United States, and this is what you see. When communion isn't there, she writes, sex is hatred and revenge. For a woman, every inner encounter entails the risk of having her personal integrity and personhood dissolve under the battering force of male lust. Now, <clears throat> she gets that men and women are different, which is, you know, today is a refreshingly uh, realistic approach. Don't take that for granted. Um, but then you create this dialogue of sorts between Augustine and Dworkin, in which I, I almost imagine Augustine as like, you know, this sort of pithy quote, uh, like about Christianity is one beggar showing another beggar where the bread is. And I picture Augustine talking to her, I mean, and, and she's reading him and, and quoting him, trying to show her where she needs to go, right? Uh, and she just does not get it. It remains a foreign language to her. The two had plenty in common, you assert. Both wondered if sex can be reimagined without lust a section of the chapter, which the realist in me and in you, I can see, uh, understands that we can turn a thing over and evaluate it from different angles, and yet we still can wind up coming back to the original conclusion, can sex be reimagined without lust, uh, which boils down at least to your initial straightforward assertion, I don't know, right? And I thought that was refreshingly uh, realistic. The social scientist in me, of course, wonders how we would know what pre-fall sex was like and how one would know if one is experiencing it now. Um, and then a bit of the dialogue in the book reminded me of the section in the, the book of Tobit where Tobias and Sarah, you know, this is her seventh and last <laughs> great hope and a husband and, 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 and so just before they go, to the marriage bed, he prays, now, not with lust, but with fidelity, I take you as my wife. Send down your mercy, Lord, etc., etc. Amen and amen. And it says, then they went to bed for the night. Right? Somewhat, you know, lacking details. Okay? <laughs> Which leads one to wonder, is it possible? I don't know. Right? I, mean, I don't usually hear too many uh, wedding homilies that focus on... The, the text of that, if, uh, but perhaps on, on the, the, the nobility of the manner in which he approaches her. So, second, you write that sexual trauma was a glaring narrative in Dworkin's life, and that is plainly obvious, and uh, you spell it out in multiple different uh, forms over her, uh, her biography. And you say, the worst abuses she suffered and documented were meted out by the radical men, by men who claim to have discovered a new morality or else have transcended the moral altogether. So the chapter made me think more about the nature of what we would call sexual violence, which of course need not be violent in terms of 
aggression, you know, when we think of, when men think of violence, they think of like bruises and beatings and things like this. Some egregious acts appear even to employ the consent of the violated in sexual violence. And yet we still rightly treat those acts as immoral and sometimes criminal, especially when they involve youth. And it seems clearly the case that uh, Ms. Dworkin experienced this. Um, I recently testified in federal district court on, on a case which rem reminded me of this. Um, the plaintiff was uh, a member of her Christian college's LGBT community, and she testified to having been sexually assaulted. By whom? By an acquaintance that shared her politics, right? Who, shared, who was part of this community of LGBT. And so, but she was, you know, she's a plaintiff suing the Christian colleges and the U.S. Department of Education. How did she come to blame them? How did she come to blame social conservatives? In this case, her university's sort of relationship and behavioral code. These folks feel vulnerable. They've been hurt, often consistently, typically but not exclusively so by men who are fans of the progressive turn in sex and sexuality. And so they somehow perceive that there is protection somewhere that they're seeking, right? Dworkin is seeking protection somewhere, even if it's this, this notion that uh, uh, all sex is a, a violation, is rape. She's seeking protection. The student is seeking protection in law over norm and over tradition. She no longer trusts tradition. Dworkin's spurning of tradition just leaves her no good way out, right? And I think you, you kind of demonstrate that in that chapter, and it's obvious. I think the same is true today, but we're confronted even with different forms of this. Um, you mentioned pornography. We think of pornography as something somehow fundamentally different, that adults can consent to its use and do as they please and it's not harmful. And I'll tell you, you know, it's backed more by the LGBT community than any other group, right? When you talk about attitudes towards it. But you think about a 12-year-old or a 13-year-old, to, to put aside the adults, a 12 or 13-year-old, they often consent out of curiosity. But today, perhaps more than in the Playboy pinup era, what happens to them when they interact with pornography is not something wholly different than what happens to them when they are interacting with a real person. It is different, yes, but deformed sexual learning is occurring in both situations. Absent of love, absent of understanding, absent of a real person. We wonder why there is an absolute crisis going on in adolescent and young adult anxiety today. Just unbelievable crisis in this. It predated COVID, but got worse during it, in part because they were driven further online, further into a world of image and the cultivation of image, not necessarily pornographic images, but like the cultivation of image and independence and strangers, and friends who are actually not friends. 
It is, as you suggest, coercive. So, like writing into law a paid benefit like Social Security makes it stick because the people like it. I think here, too, a law about pornography and pornographic access would, if it could ever happen, would be something that would be apt to stick. Congress, state legislatures would have a hard time undoing something that is so clearly unconducive to the common good that people want. Third, you go so far as to declare the progressive situation as schizophrenic, and you're absolutely correct in saying so. And, and you very nearly suggest the same of conservatives here. And had you done so, I probably would have agreed there as well. On the left, you write that about the simultaneous push for greater sexual autonomy at the same time that there is increasing discussion of sexuality's risks and dangers. Autonomy, risk, danger. Concern about risk, of course, is to be expected in our country, which is obsessed <laughs> obsessed with minimizing physical risk. We've seen this in the last few years. And with the, almost the tacit assumption that mental wellness will follow in turn if we can minimize risk, which doesn't, of course, because this tramples underfoot compelling narratives about the point and the purpose of life. Laboring in vain to build health upon science, unaware that scientists themselves serve narratives that science as a method could never affirm. Reminds me of a yard sign I saw recently. <laughs> Simply said, you matter. You matter. Okay? Don't take God's word for it. Take some random yard sign's word for it, right? And if that isn't enough, this was near the university. If that isn't enough, we'll add administrators and staff, strangers all, who'll be paid to say the same things to kids. And yet the young people themselves are not convinced. They're not convinced when somebody tells them, a stranger tells them. Meanwhile, on the right, we're so defensive uh, of the free market, and you know, I asked you a question about this last night, and I, you know, I wrote about it in Future of Christian Marriage. We're so defensive of the free market that we haven't realized that its impulses are imperial. Uh, it doesn't know where to stop. We have benefited from it immensely. Go to Central and Eastern Europe; like they don't want communism back. But they recognize that the free market has introduced some things that aren't fabulous, right? It doesn't know to stop outside the home. Families, parents, marriages. Uh, in, in my book, I, I give this example. Uh, you know, leaving your wife for a younger woman may be immoral and widely derided, but you can't say it's not a free market move because trading up right is is exactly what we do in this country economically so it's a, it's a, you know it's disconcerting so when i use move in this direction you're speaking my language not because i'm a lefty sociology but 
uh, professor. But because I do still recognize that uh, uh, markets don't necessarily have people's best interests in mind. So, but you conclude that if you have to choose between Dworkin and the giddy pro-sex ideology of today, the morally serious person should choose the company of the woman who spoke unpleasant truths. So I appreciate it. Um, thank, thank you for that, Mark. Um, I consider myself somehow implicated in 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 Mark's um, uh, raising up of scholarly controversy. He he doesn't recollect this, but when I was when I started at the Wall Street Journal as like the junior most op-ed editor, um, one of the first pieces I was assigned. Um, I now have to revise it. Either was by Mark or by a journalist maybe a Naomi Riley or someone else writing about the controversy surrounding your work. And um, I accepted the op-ed, uh, or my editor did, and I was handed to it. And um, so then I, I followed then, because I felt like I had some minor role in the controversy that, that uh, your research on the outcomes of um, family outcomes in, in same-sex marriages did. And so that I was very invested so that, uh, as I told you last night, that, you know, when you triumphed in the university, I, you know, I cheered on uh, along, and I was very grateful that you signed that statement, which initially was not controversial. David Brooks tweeted it out and said, "You know, the right's going in interesting places," and then, and then the reception <laughs> turned as often <laughs> as these things often do. Um, just to answer your, um, you, you had great thoughts. Again, I, I have no substantive disagreement with, and uh, not, not even minor quibbles, but um, you mentioned. Tobit, and and there, there are moments. How, how does scripture t teach uh, touch on sexuality? And um, it c this is a kind of <laughs> completely unrelated point. But one of the things that I love about the Hebrew Bible is our moment. Because you mentioned like what what happened when they went to bed. Are these moments of of uh, of humor in the Bible, which Tobit does not include. But one of my favorite ones where you can hear an absolutely kind of Jewish, almost comedic voice in the Bible is after Moses has taken the um, the Israelites out of out of out of Egypt, and you can almost hear a Larry David voice type voice saying like, "You brought us here." Like there weren't, you know. <laughs> um, now to go to back to scripture and sexuality um, and humor, uh, there was a I was recently asked to review a new translation of the Bunda Hessian, which is the Zoroastrian Genesis. It's the Zoroastrian book of, um, uh, of cosmology and eschatology. And in, in that book, the um, protagonists are not Adam and Eve, but um, Masyane, the primordial man and woman. And in, in the, again, in the Zoroastrian Genesis, um, which was written down uh, actually only about a thousand years ago, but had been orally transmitted for much longer before that. Zoroastrian is a very, very old religion. The the devil somehow convinces the couple not to have sex, um, and for the first fifty years of their marriage, Adam and Eve in this story don't have sex, and then finally they get around to it. Some some divine intervention, where they're like, "Yeah, actually, we should do it," and and. And they both exclaim, we should have been doing this for 50 years. <laughs> um, 
so that there are, I don't know what point I'm making with, with recounting this, I just, <laughs> but there are, there are, you know, visions of, of sex as not, uh, as, as, as unitive, as, as good, as ordered to bringing man and woman together in scripture that can even have humor in this case. Um, I wanted to hone in on what you said about um, how pornography has, it's become like social security although I would argue social security serves like an actual common good, whereas in this case it's the exact opposite, but nevertheless that it's so entrenched now that for any legislator, regulator, what have you, to try to take it on would be very difficult. And I agree, it would be, it would, it would be really difficult. One of the statistics that I cite in that chapter, and I'm, I'm sure you're aware of, is that um, at the dawn of the 2010s, uh, the uh, University of ha New Hampshire sexology study found that nine out of 10 um, American boys are exposed to hardcore pornography before hitting puberty. And that is such a staggering figure. I constantly cite it in, in public settings because that is, there is something wrong when an 11 year old has a 90% chance of encountering hardcore. Um, and how do we begin to combat it? Well, I would say that Intellectual projects in which traditionalists try to build alliances with, for example, uh, non-sex positive feminists like um, Andrea Dorkin, and now there's a kind of post-MeToo feminism, may bear some fruit. Um, as everyone uh, I'm sure remembers, uh, and this is a kind of painful point, someone joked about it online, I'll tell you the joke, but that, um, you know, Pornhub had its, had its um, um, had a, a lot of major companies stopped dealing with Pornhub after Nick Kristoff wrote this kind of expose on how much of its content is actually non-consensual. And okay, is it? Would I ideally want to argue that even if it was quote unquote consensual, it was still it's degrading to 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 the people who participate and people who view it? Yes, I would argue that ideally. But the fact that there is kind of images of minors circulating was enough to get through a Nick Kristoff article get Pornhub um, put under enormous public pressure. And someone joked on Twitter, literally they said, Saurabh Amari wrote 50,000 articles. <laughs> and then it just took Nick Kristoff doing one because it helps, <laughs> it helps when a liberal does it. Uh, so, you know, I think there, are, there, is, there is a kind of burgeoning alliance of what they call the post-left and the post-right, people like me and, and me too feminists who don't start from autonomy as the highest principle, but rather maybe safety, uh, maybe sort of the integrity of women. And I, I hope that that intellectual alliance can continue to develop. We, we won't agree with them ever on certain things like abortion. That's just um, that we will continue to be at logger, loggerheads with them about. But um, on this issue of porn, I do think there are possibilities because everyone recognizes it's, it has become a bipartisan awareness that it's bizarre when my son has a 90% chance of encountering, you know, I'm going to do my damnedest um, to avoid that, but that he has a 90% chance of encountering pornography before he hits puberty. So all the guilt that that induces, as you know, the rewiring of what their sexual expectations are so that the, when they encounter real women, this has been deeply reported both journalistically and and in, in the scholarly literature that they expect 
their female partners to be like porn stars. And, so, and, and that creates all sorts of distance and alienation. Um, and also, I mean, the, the whole hookup culture, um, Dworkin doesn't touch on this. I mean, she condemns hookup culture in her own way, but she mainly con condemns it as a, as a scourge of women, which it is. But we don't talk about how it's also a scourge of men, that in fact men it, are not naturally conditioned, or naturally, not, not, they don't naturally tend to want to do this incredibly intimate thing with another human being and then say, okay, bye, right? That's not natural. It actually is very, it's, it's very painful, and yet you know, they're sort of encouraged to do it. So you know, I, it, again, I agree with everything you said. I just hope that there is some possibility of working and seeking common grounds with, with the post-left, with the post-MeToo feminist movement on areas where we do have common ground. And it's, you know, to go back to our um, starting figure, St. Thomas Aquinas always sought out the common ground with some other interlocutor and built from that. And so I think in this area as well, we can do that with, with, um, with sections of the feminist movement. Thank you all for listening to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. Please share it with your friends. Please give us a five-star rating, and please donate so we can do even more.